Hey, we're doing something a little bit different today. I'm here in the studio all by myself to talk to you about whether microservices are dead. Welcome to another episode of the Real-Time Analytics Podcast. I am your host, Tim Berglund, soloing it in the studio today. Uh, there's been some discussion uh, in the last few weeks as I record this. I think it's May 12th today, something like that, about the middle of May. Um, and uh, Twitter has been a buzz about the, the death of microservices. The, it's a good thing that hype is all over. It was a terrible idea, and we've all moved on. Um, I had some thoughts, and even though this is the real-time analytics podcast and not just the, the, the application architecture podcast, the topics are related, and I want to talk about why, and I want to think through this topic with you a little bit. Now, how did this start? Well, in, I want to say, late March, maybe about March 22nd, 23rd, something like that, there was a blog post by the uh, Amazon Prime video team. So that's Amazon Prime Video. Uh, that's not AWS itself. Uh, it's, a, it's a different part of Amazon. And in the popular understanding of this blog post, as it had sort of worked its way out into public discourse, uh, the popular understanding was we had we had this service that we built, and we built it with microservices, and it scaled terribly, and it was very expensive. So we migrated to a monolith, and it was cheaper, and it worked better, and isn't that great? and aren't microservices stupid. Now, if you go back and you actually read the blog post that they wrote linked in the show notes, number one, a team that blogs about something they built that didn't work and then how they fixed it. You know, this is content to handle with respect. It's it's not a particularly unusual kind of writing in the software development space. But, you know, when somebody says, hey, we built this thing, it was kind of dumb, didn't work real good. And, you know, we thought of something better and we built it in this other way. I don't know. There's a certain vulnerability in saying, here's a mistake we made. So you, I don't know. You just want to treat that carefully and actually read it and, and, and take it seriously. Uh, so uh, none of this discussion is at all to bag on uh, these great folks at Amazon Prime Video. Personally, I happen to be an Amazon Prime Video subscriber. I enjoy content. Where else can one watch The Expanse? So it's, uh, it's a great thing. And again, as this conversation kind of made its way out into the world and, and was interpreted, it was, it was, well, they tried building something with microservices. It scaled badly. They were expensive. They migrated to a monolith, and, and it was great. That's not really what happened. Before I get to dissecting that, let me talk about why it matters here uh, and, and why we would even be talking about microservices on a podcast that's ostensibly about analytics. Well, real-time analytics doesn't emerge in a vacuum. And a technology like Pinot, which is the thing that I tend to focus on the most in this space, um, absolutely is an analytics database. And it, it began its life as a means of doing analytics queries in real time, to, by which we mean you know queries that are served to users, as it were, synchronously in a user interface. Um, but a technology that like that emerges in uh, an architectural context where things are happening. And I, I talk about this, I, I don't know if I talk about it much on this show, but you know, in talks I give publicly, um, I tend to harp on this idea that we're in the middle of an upheaval in application architecture. Uh, now, the, what, what we now sort of derisively call the monolith uh, really is 
about a 30 or 40 year old paradigm called client server. And the, the, the essence of client server is that there's a database, that database is where all your state lives, you own that thing, and then an application grows up around that database and exposes the data to the users of the application. And in many cases, that application is some kind of variation on CRUD over entities. You're creating, reading, updating, deleting things. Those things are out in the world that, that you as a knowledge worker are dealing with in your job. And, you know, most of the business software that exists in the client server paradigm is something like CRUD plus RBAC. You've got access controls and you're reading and writing things, right? And client server works real well for that and has for a long time and continues to work well in lots of places. We don't say client server. Usually, honestly, to me, the, the phrase evokes the 1980s. It's just not a thing that we often say without being a little bit cute. Um, these days we say monolith because of, well, the problems that client server had in managing very complex applications and applications that needed to scale in sometimes dramatic ways because of, of, you know, various dynamics introduced by, well, the web. So we're in this upheaval where that old paradigm that a lot of us, a lot of people who are working as software engineers and, and you know, in, in leadership positions, uh, architects and so forth. That's the paradigm we've grown up in and that, and that we know. Uh, and it's under stress now and being replaced with this new event-driven paradigm, which is really where microservices have landed. So uh, we used to build monoliths. Now we break those big programs up into lots of little pieces and those little pieces exchange messages with one another, usually over Kafka these days. Okay, so you've got all these little services talking to, talking to each other through topics instead of just one big program. Now, that's a thing, okay? That is happening. Uh, it's difficult to, difficult to deny. Um, and that's a, that's a transition in architectural style that comes with trade-offs. It's not like this is self-evidently better all the time. Um, it's just got some advantages and those advantages prove to be compelling for many teams, and that's why this transition seems to be afoot. That's the context in which a database like Pinot grows up, databases like Pinot, and other people doing things that serve analytics to users in, uh, inside the interaction layer in, quote-unquote, real time. Uh, that whole discipline of real-time analytics would have a hard time emerging without this other transition happening uh, towards services, towards event-driven architecture, you know, those, those other drivers of real-time behavior in the applications that we build. So uh, microservices are not, strictly speaking, an analytics topic, but they're closely related because analytics, real-time analytics, um, is co-evolving in the context of that transition. It's, it's co-evolving with microservices. So I think they're related. So if somebody says microservices are a bad idea, uh, they're dead, we need monoliths. Well, that doesn't mean uh, real-time analytics is a bad idea. We don't need to do it, but it's interesting, isn't it? And is, is this all just a fad? And should we still all be writing Rails monoliths like it was 2007? I don't think so. And I also have to say, I don't mind the pushback on gigantic 
trends that seem like they could be passing fads. Now, microservices have been with us for a little bit. I mean, the term dates to what, 2010, 2011, 2012. It's, it's kind of been around for a while. It doesn't seem like it's going away. But when everybody is on the train and pushing in the same direction, I have respect for people whose hackles go up a little bit because to some degree, I'm like that. If everybody's doing it, I have a hard time doing it too. When Ted Lasso season one came out, did I jump on and watch Ted Lasso right away? No, everybody was talking about it. They just wouldn't stop. That was kind of the high pandemic days and, and you know, focus on a TV show like that was a thing. And I'm like, wow, okay, I get it. It's a good show, but I'm, I'm just not going to go there. No, I had to wait until a while after season two came out to jump on board. And of course, then I was a massive fan. So I get not wanting or I get resisting the trend. And certainly we are in uh, the, the, the software world, every bit as susceptible to the boom and bust cycle as anything else. These things happen. Uh, you've got the, the well-known Gartner hype cycle that, that is you know, actually kind of a pretty good way of looking at things like this. Uh, booms and busts happen in economics. They happen in, in populate, biological populations and in, in wildlife. It's a thing. They happen to us too. So you, you got to look for, is a boom happening? And it's not always uh, the, the bust afterward that's the interesting thing. It's, it's the boom. That's what should make you feel leery, as my favorite economist, Russ Roberts, said. Um, and so, yeah, let's be careful. Is, is this just a, a bunch of hype? And, and should we all go back to monoliths? I, I, I want to say no, even though I respect the attention. So let's get back to the actual blog post itself. What what did that team do? Again, I think the popular understanding as it was interpreted and written and blogged about by, by other critics and people eager to, to kiss microservices and any sort of popular movement uh, good, goodbye, the popular interpretation was they built microservices, then they, they refactored back to a monolith. Well, um, what were they doing? First of all, I guess a little bit of context there is helpful. They were building a service that monitors the quality of video streams. And again, I am grateful for that for the things I watch on Amazon Prime, The Expanse, Downton Abbey, these great series that are that are there, huge fan, right? Uh, they've, they've got a service that actually monitors the quality of, of the streams that, that go back to subscribers. That's kind of cool. That sounds like a thing that, that would need to scale, right? It sounds like there's a lot of compute there. Um, and they didn't build that with microservices. They built it with lambdas. So, um, okay, that is a horse of a different color. Now, um, I, that's a very valid service inside AWS. And if you're listening to this and you've built stuff with lambdas, that's interesting. I would love to hear about it. Uh, I would love to hear what those things are. I know there are successful use cases and deployments out there, but it's never quite been clear with lambdas how one builds an application, right? If you look at the, the typical uh, AWS developer advocate talk about lambdas, and this was more common, you know, pre-pandemic a few years ago when, when lambdas were a, or a newer idea, uh, the, the talk was seeming that, that I saw was always about uh, video transcoding or image transcoding or something like that. You know, for all the video that you have to transcode, who doesn't have video to transcode at scale? I mean, I guess I don't, but that's an easy to see use case for that technology. I've got this giant pile in S3 of these big things, and I need to do some computationally intensive task with each one purely functional. I just need to throw the, the paths of those objects 
at the service and the service will spin up and do its compute and go away and I'll only pay for that compute time. Glorious and like perfect. We should have a, a service in our clouds that lets us do that kind of thing. I get that. But it was never quite clear how I would decompose my whole application into function calls. And this is a good example of a boom and bust cycle because I think the more maybe millenarian accounts of Lambda when it was new uh, said, well, this is the future. You know, we had, we had bare metal servers and then we had VMs and then we had containers. And, uh, you know, that's, that's still not quite the right unit of deployment. The right unit of deployment is just a function itself. And we're going to decompose everything into functions and the economics are, the economics are undeniable and this is the future. It, it didn't really seem to quite work out that way, right? Um, so what this team did was build their service in uh, AWS Lambda. Now, maybe that was a better fit than random business application, uh, but they built it in Lambda and another AWS service called Step Functions, which is like a Lambda coordinator. When you've got kind of stateful saga-like work to do across a number of function calls, you can coordinate those with, with step functions. So I've links to all these things in the show notes. And again, this is not to criticize any of these services. Okay, they exist. They're good. They, are, are, they, they find valid homes. This wise, hardworking, experienced, productive team at, at Prime Video uh, tried that. And, you know, it makes sense to kind of keep things relatively in-house under the broader Amazon umbrella. Let's do these Amazon things. I, I would have done that if I were them. It didn't work out very well. It didn't scale well and it was expensive. Okay, not a good fit for those things. And so what they did was they rebuilt that into a monolith. They wrote a computer program that ran on a server that processed these streams and it was cheaper to operate and scaled better. And that was a big win. Now, um, even that is not a failure of the microservices paradigm. That's a failure of serverless functions for this use case. And it's worth noting that as microservices have expanded and have found more use cases and have and are proving to be a very reasonable architectural approach for writing business software, it's not clear that functions as a service have found their way into those kinds of general use cases. This seems to be a case of a team trying in an interesting and prudent and experimental way to use functions as a service to do their thing. Didn't work out real good. And a monolith was fine. So uh, this, is, this wasn't a failure of microservices. It was a failure of an of a attempt at doing a thing one way and, and moving on to the next. Uh, I think also interesting, the end game, again, in, in maybe the popular critic curmudgeonly microservices are stupid understanding of this story was um, we refactored to a monolith, the monolith scaled and was cheap. Okay. Actually not even really true uh, because they've had to deploy multiple instances of that monolith and kind of do some partitioning of the, the units of work ahead of them being ingested by you know, this monolithic process. So it's not even strictly true that a monolith scaled properly for them. Now they're having to do their own partitioning and balancing of load between instances of the monolith, which gets you back to some of the problems with the monolithic architecture. Now it's a solvable problem. And if partitioning that workload on your own is, is, is reasonable to tackle, sometimes that's reasonable to tackle. Again, this is a successful case. This is an example of, hey, 
it was a good idea to write a monolith here. It was a bad idea to use functions as a service. But literally no part of this story that these competent engineers who did us the courtesy of being vulnerable and describing their failed approach and their new approach and talking about how it worked, you know, that's actually good. That helps everybody when we share our stories of how we build things and how we learn. No part of their story speaks to the revolution happening in application architecture. The fact that uh, the, the client-server paradigm, which is the age of my younger, younger brother, it's, it's not quite my age, but it's close, um, that paradigm is actually showing its age. And um, there actually is a migration afoot to a new way of building business applications, business software, the kind of code that most of us who work in this industry uh, spend our time writing. Uh, yeah, there really is a way, uh, you know, a newer set of ideas. And I think the, the, the nature of that revolution and the fact that we are now establishing a new generational paradigm, just like the one in the 80s when, when these, these wild-eyed prophets crying out in the wilderness that, that it's time to stop connecting terminals to mainframes and time to start putting PCs on a LAN and running a database server on a PC and writing applications that connect to that database server. That was this, this crazy idea back then when, when um, you know, people were wearing neon colored clothes and leg warmers and, and uh, growing mullets and all that kind of thing. Uh, back in those days, that was the new idea that the, the transition to microservices now is that kind of thing. And I think this whole incident, while it provides interesting opportunities to reflect on functions as a service and, and, you know, kind of their viability in the stack, where they ought to live, what works, what doesn't. An interesting opportunity to reflect on boom and bust cycles in technology. A little bit of a chance to step back and try to have some self-awareness and say, am I just doing this because it's cool and everybody's doing it? Or is there really something here? It is good to stop and read the critique and think through it. That's really what I did and why I wanted to talk about it on this episode because all that's very healthy. And having gone through that process and I hope you know, walking through it in, in this episode, um, I think that points us back to, no, still, still a thing. Uh, Event-driven architecture, definitely still a thing. And the, the long-term, uh, I quoted an economist before, I'll, I'll use an economic term, the, the secular trends, which when economics say that word, when economists say that word, they mean long-term trends, right? It's kind of long-term exogenous. They're outside the system. There are things happening to you over a long period of time. Uh, we have these secular trends like application complexity is increasing and, um, you know, monoliths don't handle that well. Client server doesn't handle that well. We've got um, consumer expectations because you've got smartphones, you know, um, and, and, you know, they're just normal. We have this pocket connected computer uh, all the time that responds to events out in the world. Our expectations are that things happen in real time. These are, these are secular trends and we really just have to kind of identify them, name them and respond to them. I don't get to change that. I can decide to, to keep a flip phone. You know, that makes me kind of strange. Um, and it doesn't change the fact that the software I write for work is going to have to respond to events in real time. It doesn't change the fact that unlocking the data inside the application 
um, and inside the business and making that data a feature that we expose to users uh, in, in an open way and in real time. It doesn't change the fact that that's now a thing that's happening. So I'm very happy for that original blog post. I'm happy for that team that is getting better results with, the, with what they've got now. And I'm happy for the, the analysis of that blog post, even the parts of the analysis that I don't think were really on target because they've given us an opportunity to think through the changes that are happening in our world right now and you know get a chance to validate. I really think they are real and that we're in the right place and we're doing the right things. Thanks for listening. And there you have it. If you feel compelled to help us spread the word and grow the real-time analytics community, you can give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you're watching us on YouTube, hey, subscribe and of course, hit that notification bell. And you can always share your favorite episodes on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever it is you do social media. Thanks, and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode.